HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food. My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X. Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds. What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos, because they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Although, the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times, it's pretty hype. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how they impact all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm so excited to be speaking with farmer, educator, author, and food justice activist, Leah Penniman. Leah co-founded and manages Soulfire Farm in Petersburg, New York, and she's also the author of the incredible book, Farming While Black a manual for African heritage growers to reclaim their dignity as agriculturalists and for all people to understand the distinct technical contributions of African heritage people to sustainable agriculture. We will be talking about the many ways that racism is, in Leah's words, baked into our food system, her work over the past 20 years to end racism and injustice in the food system, and how, quote, To farm while black is an act of self-defiance against white supremacy. And one thing I wanted to say before we get started, um, I want to acknowledge that words, of course, matter. And while I am sometimes worried about saying something that could be offensive without realizing it, I am here to learn and I welcome any feedback in how I talk and think about issues of social, racial, and food justice so that I personally can do better. 
So I apologize in advance if I cause harm, and I'm grateful to you, Leah, um, for taking the time today to be here with me and to discuss these important issues. And with that, Leah, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me. Um, And before we officially get started, um, I want to say that uh, I'm really happy to have you on the show to talk about these very important issues. Um, And I acknowledge that words matter. And while I am (laughs) worried that I might say something that's offensive without knowing it, I am here to learn and I welcome feedback and coaching and improvements um, in how I personally talk and think about issues of social racist and food uh, injustice so that I can do better. So I apologize in advance if I might cause any harm. And I am very grateful for you for taking the time to be here to discuss these important issues with me so that I can learn. Wow. Well, thank you so much for that acknowledgement. I mean, I really believe that we're all in a learning journey around this. I know I certainly make mistakes all the time and cause harm unintentionally. And the most important thing is that we're ready to really look honestly at this painful history of racial injustice and other types of oppression and, and move forward together to make it right. So I appreciate that. And I'm excited to talk. Yeah, great. Okay, so let's start um, with the very basics. Can you tell me about Soul Fire Farm and the work that you do there? Absolutely. I love talking about Soul Fire Farm. So uh, (laughs) we we are an Afro-Indigenous-centered community farm on 80 acres of Mohican territory, also known as Rensselaer County, New York. And there are seven of us in this collective dedicated to ending racism and injustice in the food system, which is a super big task. Um, And we break it down into, (laughs) you know, there's three main things we do, right? We grow food using our ancestors' sustainable and regenerative methods. And then we pack up all of that wonderful, you know, vegetables, eggs, fruits, value-add products, and deliver it to the doorsteps of people who need it most in our community, as well as um, support those folks in growing their own food through our Soul Fire in the City garden. In program. The second major thing that we do is to train up the returning generation of black and brown farmers. Um, I think we know there's really dismal statistics about the number of black farmers remaining and, you know, all types of history of land loss that I'm sure we'll get into. But our job is Mm -hmm. to train and support and equip that next generation. So we have thousands of people coming through our program. And then once they graduate, they're forever part of our family. So we're hooking them up Mm -hmm. with land and scholarships and jobs and technical assistance and all that. And the final thing we do is like root cause stuff, you know, because fundamentally the laws in this country are really whack. They're really unfair for farmers and farm workers, really unfair for consumers who are living in poverty and can't access fresh food. So both by creating institutions like a land trust and a lending association, and also by trying to change some of these laws, we're we're trying to actually fix the landscape so that these farmers that we train can survive, you know, out there. Yeah. Uh, When do you sleep? (laughs) Do you, do you sleep? Because in reading through all the work that you do, I'm like, how is this possible for one person? (laughs) Well, I'm not alone. So that's the really good news, but I will say that a learning edge for all of us. And and this has been true of our, you know, amazing ancestors and comrades in social justice is there's so much to be done, so much demand. It's all super important. And we are prone to overwork ourselves and really, you know, talk about causing harm, like cause harm to ourselves and those who are leaders in the movement. So I will not claim to have figured out that part. I really struggle with sleep. I struggle with balance. You know, I'm like, 
I will be working until at least 10 o'clock tonight. And that's pretty typical. Uh, yeah. So I welcome advice from anyone out there who managed <laughs> to find that balance. Well, thank you for taking an hour out of your day or, you know, 45 minutes to chat with me. Um, I, I know you're busy. Um, okay. So what is your background? How did you come into this line of work? I mean, to me, it seems like a, a calling. Um, so yeah. How, how, how'd you get here? I love that. You know, I think it is a calling, but I'm not sure I recognize it as such. I mean, in some ways it was an escape, right? Because my siblings and I, so Naima, Alan, myself, we grew up in, mostly grew up in this rural conservative white town in Massachusetts. And we were the only brown kids in school. So to say that our peers were cruel to us would be a gentle understatement. I mean, we just really struggled with bullying and violence and uh, mm. exclusion and all this. So in the absence of a peer community, we found solace in the forest. I mean, we spent all our time, you know, looking for blueberries on the islands of the lakes in our town and hugging trees. And, you know, that was our childhood. Mm. So when I when I got old enough to get a paid job in my teens, I wanted to do something with nature and farming was what was available. Uh, so I got a job at the Food Project. I was living with my mom in Boston that summer. And I've just found love. You know, there's I don't know if you've ever had the experience of harvesting cilantro and then mm -hmm. the smell of that amazing pungent herb is like in the creases of your hands into the night. Yeah. So I remember going to sleep just smelling my hands and being like, this is magic. This is just magical stuff. And, you know, 24 years later, do the math. Uh, I'm still farming. Yeah. And I've also been, you know, 17 years public school teacher. There's been a lot of things parallel to that. Uh, but mm -hmm. I can't stay away from it. There's nothing as undeniably like simple, pure and good as taking care of the soil, like putting a seed in the ground, pulling out a carrot, feeding it to someone who needs it. It's just, it just rocks, you know? So yeah, yeah. I'm really happy to be a farmer. Um, that's amazing. I I have experience harvesting cilantro. I've also had a lot of experience tearing my hair out because of like squash vine borers and I the fact that I couldn't grow zucchini for like I still can't. <laughs> so I've had like both ends of that, by the way, where it was. Oh, sis, um, we got a lot of zucchini. So you just need to roll on up because today I was, I mean, literally yes. today is our harvest and CSA pack day. And I gave my daughter these giant crates of zucchini. I was like, you need to grate this up, dewater it and freeze it so that we can make like zucchini yes. bread for our members over the next eight months. Like we have uh, so much so I will. So I will definitely come for that too. It's like my favorite. Um, so you, so you mentioned your daughter. Um, you have two kids. How has being a mother impacted the work that you have done? Oh my goodness, being a parent is everything. And and my partner and I joke that we have three children. So we have Nishima who's seventeen, Emmett who's fifteen, and Soulfire Farm who's ten. And Soulfire Farm <laughs> is like the most needy of our children and the most time consuming <laughs> for our children, and also beloved. But yes, two biological human children, and uh, you know, I mean, this isn't exactly what you asked, but a lot of my friends who are like thinking about having children, what mm -hmm. I share with them is that when my first child was born. I suddenly felt like I understood the purpose of all existence on earth, like the coyotes, wow. right? What do they do? They, they strive and they protect and they defend so that they can make life. Like what does every tree and flower do, right? It strives to collect sugars and minerals so it can make life. Every mm -hmm. bird, every insect, every worm, every amphibians, like singular focus is how do I take this gift of life that I've been given and then create it 
and and push it forward. And I felt like suddenly when my child was born, I was in community with the butterflies, with the bees, with the, you know, the echinacea, you know, with the pine tree. Mm. Like suddenly I felt like in this community of parents that extended beyond our human family. And I was like, oh, I get it. Like I actually get what life is for. And it is the most profound, beautiful experience. And, you know, it's not disconnected from farming because I just have thousands of babies that happen to be plants and I worry about them mm-hmm. and I tend to them. And But to make life, like what other greater blessing um, is there? And, you know, it's been super cool, of course, raising the kids on the farm. They have mixed feelings about it. Of course, in COVID, it's like the coolest place to be because at least they can go outside yeah. and do something. <laughs> and all their New York yeah. City friends yeah. are losing their minds. But yes. you know, my yeah. kids my kids can build a house. They can grow their own food. Uh, they can cook for 100. They can run a youth program. They can edit a video series. Like They got some serious skills. And that is a, a real privilege. I recognize the privilege of that. But that's my dream for yeah. all children, you know, to be able to... Yeah from when they're little, just see that they can create something with their hands that's like a value to the community. They're not just consumers consuming media, you know, consuming corporate goods, but they actually can contribute something of value to their their family and community. How many people have gone through your training programs and, and what percentage have gone on to become farmers um, themselves? So a lot. So we have a lot of different <laughs> programs, right? So the most popular yeah. one that, that folks often think of when they think of Soul Fire is our week-long immersion. So this is kind of like farm summer camp for grown-ups. You know, they arrive on a Sunday. It's 50 hours of really intense instruction throughout the week, everything soil to harvest to market. And those are the folks that we track as far as like farming stats. And we know that approximately three quarters are either farming or they're working actively in like the sphere of food and agriculture in a leadership role. But we also Mm -hmm. have, we have our youth programs. We have our uprooting racism, multiracial trainings. You know, we got our, our, book tour and talks and webinars. So all of these things. And I don't know how many folks become farmers, but I will tell you that I had a really sweet moment when I was on book tour before everything shut down. And this little girl, four-year-old child came up to me in my line to get her book signed. And she had her hair done in a braided mm-hmm. bun like I always wear. Mm-hmm. And she just looks at yes. me and she's like, when I grow up, I'm going to be a farmer like you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're claiming her. She's going to be a farmer too. She just, she's still That's six amazing. baby now, you know, so it'll take a little yeah. while. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. You're like, I hope you like to get your hands dirty. (laughs) I think she's for real. You know, it's like, I didn't have role models like that. You know, when I was starting to farm in my teens, I did go to all the farming conferences. I read all the books, you know, did the things that uh, eager whippersnappers do. And I'm telling you, like everybody who was in an expert role was white and most of them were men. And I started to get very disillusioned Mm -hmm. about whether I had chosen the right path, whether I was a traitor to my ancestors, a discredit to my people, you know, and um, it really took meeting Karen Washington, who's a black farmer mentor of mine, to -hmm. turn that around, you know, so I really pray that, you know, amongst all the folks who graduate from our soul fire programs that we're creating mentors and role models for that next generation, like farming is an awesome thing to do. It's really dignified. It's really necessary. And we need to give it that position of prestige that it deserves. Um, so, you know, I have a a question about, um, like, you know, farming is tough business. I'm sure you know that more than ever, just in terms of the physical labor and the uncertainty of, you know, crops coming through. Does it ever, does it ever like, um, give you pause in a way that 
um, like, like helping people enter a profession whose path we know, given our current super broken food and ag systems are, it's just going to be really difficult. Mm-hmm. Has that ever come up? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, it keeps me up at night. Like, how can we be in, in in integrity, you know, sharing with people the ins and outs of a profession that you're almost guaranteed to be needing a side hustle just to survive? And so, you know, yeah. the way that we talk about that is we're, we're really transparent. I mean, all of our finances are open. Uh, we talk about what the side hustles need to look like. We talk about the policies that need to change for us not to need a side hustle, because right now the federal yep. government heavily subsidizes industrial ag to make it financially mm-hmm. viable, but doesn't subsidize our agriculture, which is actually the ag that is bringing the pollinators back, sequestering carbon, mm-hmm. recharging the aquifers, right? All of these ecosystem yep. services that are part of the public trust, we should be paid for. So we talk about the advocacy piece as well. Um, but the thing is, you know, when people are called back to the land, you're not gonna you're not gonna stop them. So you might as well give them the tools to make the best of it. And there are ways to be financially viable. But in the mo- to be honest, in most cases, you either need like a specialty product, like you're selling high end greens, a value mm-hmm. add product, like your soaps and your teas, or you have a little educational thing on the side, or an agritourism thing. So we talk about the reality of that. You know, if you do want to farm, and there's all of these intangible benefits around your health, your access to food, the skills you get to teach your kids, just know that that it's going to be a little dance to make the, you know, the balance sheet work out, but, but folks do it, yeah. you know, and we, we try to show the yeah. way. Um, and we're going to certainly talk about policy a little bit later in our, in the show. Um, but one of the things you also write about in your book, and, and I mean, we have to mention your book, uh, Farming While Black, which is um, Soul, Fire's Far- Soul Fire Farms Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land, which is amazing um, and now has highlighter all over my copy. Oh, that's <laughs> By so the sweet. Way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm like, I am a very prolific highlighter and there is just like so much to <laughs> that I need to remember from this book. But um, um, so uh, a lot of this information is, of course, in your in your book. What can you actually, before my next question, can you just give us a a recap about um, the book and and why you wrote it? Absolutely. You know, so Toni Morrison said, if there is a book that you need to read that hasn't been written, go and write it. And I needed Farming While Black. I mean, I already told you a little bit about my experience as a young person seeing uh, folks in expert roles in farming, like being all white. Mm -hmm. And I, I really thought that you know, everything good in agriculture came from Europeans and then sort of the sad and dismal and oppressive stuff around slavery. Like that's what black people had to do with farming. And it was Mm -hmm. so important for me to learn that that is actually not at all true. Um, In fact, many of the technologies that we consider as indispensable to sustainable ag, things like raised beds, Vermi composting, you know, biochar, permaculture, uh, rotational grazing, cover crops, all these things that are just part of how you farm. They're so hot right now. They're old and they come from the black black community. They come from the black community. You know, Ovambo people, Cleopatra, George Washington Carver. And so a big part of Farming While Black was to dig into that, you know, Google Scholar, dig into that literature in the anthropology journals, pull out those anecdotes and those stories and start to Mm -hmm. build 
build, rebuild this narrative that's not just like Black people's relationship to land is only about slavery. You know, we're not denying Mm -hmm. that. That's very important. But also, let's look at these beautiful, noble, dignified contributions that we've made all along, never stopped, um, and make that part of our story, too. And so that was that was the major impetus. And then, of course, the book is also just like a practical how to farm, how to space your carrots, how to save seed, Mm -hmm. how to make sauerkraut. Um, And there's fun anecdotes about Soul Fire Farm as well to, um, you know, just keep it real (laughs) about what we've gone through to build the project. Yeah. And there's, and there's also, um, you know, a, like a chapter on uh, white people uprooting racism, which I have uh, questions on that we can also talk about later. So it's, there are things that are, you know, very, very, uh, that were, that are always going to be timely, but right now I think are, you know, this is a, a resource for everybody to read. Um, even if you're not, a, you know, farming actively right now. So it seems to have kind of everything, everything in there <laughs> that, um, that people, that people need to know. Well, you so, never know if you're going to um, have and, energy to write like a second book. So you might as well just pack it. All <laughs> put it all in there. <laughs> I know there's a lot. I mean, there, there are chapters that admittedly, you know, the, the, like the meat of it, I'm like, I'm not, uh, my extent of, of growing right now is, um, like the, pots that I have on my balcony, um, which, uh, you know, so I, I don't have like space. So I'm like, okay, when I have a raised bed beyond the pots uh, that I have right now, I'm going to come back and really dig into this. But um, so Lee, you also have, like, as you mentioned, kind of great um, uh, like sidebars of people, some of whom you already mentioned of um, those who like, whose work has like made a major impact on the food justice system that maybe we don't know as much about, you know, that, that people wouldn't necessarily realize. Uh, is there someone or a couple of people whose work, you know, has made like a really meaningful contribution that you um, want other people to, to know more about? Mm. Oh my goodness. So many, but I'll keep it. To I know. Two. I know. So, it's, I, yeah, like, yeah. I'm like all of them, all of them. Read all the book of them. Right yes. Now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. If you're going to know one name, um, it's probably Dr. George Washington Carver, who was one of the founding mm-hmm. professors at Tuskegee University in Alabama, Black Ag Institution. And Dr. Carver is widely considered the father of organic, the modern organic movement. So we're talking about the late 1890s. This is two full generations before the Rodale Institute, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Who's miscredited with founding. But he was getting a generation of, he was getting a generation of Black farmers to put aside their chemicals and focus on soil health. And he got them growing cover crops, uh, composting, doing mulches, rotating their crops. And you got to think about this time period. I mean, people were really skeptical about here's this man telling us that we should not plant our cash crops. We should let the soil rest, plant some legumes, and then turn them under. Like, are you crazy? (laughs) So he started pulling out Bible verses. He's like, God says, whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And he's talking about the earthworms, right? So he was trying to pull, like a brilliant orator. I was just reading some memoirs of his. And, you know, he believed that he could talk to plants. And that hear from plants back and forth. I mean, incredible soul. So we definitely have to uplift him. And then I think another one to uplift uh, would be Mama Fannie Lou Hamer. So she's very famous for her work with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, voter registration, all that civil rights stuff. But, you know, the activists, the young activists that work with her would make fun of Mama Hamer because she had all these cans in her house. The whole wall was lined with cans of gumbo, 
canned greens, right? Canned peaches. And they were like, why are you wasting your time with this mama? Hey, we got work to do. She said, child, if you have 400 cans of greens and gumbo soup up for the winter, nobody can push you around or tell you what to say or do. Right. If you have nothing canned for the winter, as soon as they shut down that grocery store, you'll put down your ballot, you'll put down your NAACP or we'll say Black Lives Matter, like sign. Right. And you're going to be begging to feed your children because whoever controls the food controls the people. So if we don't actually have control of our food. Right. We're never going to win this fight for civil rights. It's both. It's mm -hmm. political and it's about land and it's personal. And she didn't just talk. Right. She actually created a cooperative farm. Uh, where sharecroppers who'd been kicked off their land for registering to vote were kicked off and were homeless and jobless. She created a co-op for these sharecroppers where they shared their food and crops and tools and livestock and were able to provide for each other. So, you know, I mentioned her as just one example of the hundreds, if not thousands of black owned co-ops that were way before, way, way, way before like co-ops got trendy as like health food stores or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Co-ops were the way that black people survived because they were shut out of the white economic system. And so, yeah, I'll mention those two. I could go on and on, but <laughs> I know yeah. we don't have time. And no, no. And I mean, certainly you have amazing examples throughout the entire book, but I think that those are, um, you know, I think that's, I think that's great. And uh, I, um, kind of continuing that thread of, you know, uh, the black community being shut out of like an economic system and a, and a food system, you, you write that racism is baked into our food system. And I know this is a huge, huge topic. Um, but can you kind of like outline, can you tell, can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, racism and white supremacy are really part of the DNA of the food system as they are part of the DNA of many systems, right? This country was right. founded on the attempted genocide mm -hmm. and land theft from native people, as well as the enslavement of millions of African people. And we can't really, you know, we haven't really gotten away from that. But in short, you know, we can look at three major areas of the food system, land, labor, and food. So when it comes to land currently in this country, about 98% of the arable land is white owned, which is higher than ever. And this is not mm -hmm. an accident of history, right? It began with that original theft of land from native people, but then, you know, it continued with, with taking land or preventing people of color from owning land. So for example, despite the broken promise of 40 acres and a mule after emancipation, black folks were able to save money and purchase 16 million acres of land by 1910. Almost all of that is gone. And the number one reason why it's gone is because the federal government in the form of the U.S. Department of Agriculture discriminated against black farmers, denying them loans, crop insurance, crop allotments, technical assistance, and other supports that they were giving in abundance to white farmers. These foreclosures compounded over generations. And actually in 1999, black farmers won a class action lawsuit against the government. It was the largest in the history of this country, but it was so too little too late. It was a small payout. Uh, most of the farmers were in their 80s and 90s, couldn't get their land back, but really showed history what was the cause of this decline, right? Not to mention that the Ku Klux Klan and the White Citizens Council were uh, quite upset by the black land ownership yeah. trend in the early 1900s and literally burned people's houses and killed them and took their land. And there's over 4,000 documented cases of this and probably many more that went unreported. So that's land, right? We got we to gotta figure mm -hmm. out how to share that land back. And then when you look at labor, we have a really racially skewed uh, farm labor system where, you know, according to the last Department of Labor survey, 
uh, being a farm owner and manager was the second whitest profession after being a veterinarian, right? Whereas being a farm <laughs> laborer is the brownest yeah. profession, mostly Hispanic, Latinx, but also incarcerated African-American people being convict leased, which is a whole other thing. So we have yeah. a, a really skewed in terms of power, but also our labor laws, our basic labor laws in this country actually exclude farm workers. So the Fair Labor Standards Act excludes farm workers. And this goes back to the 1930s when the Southern Democrats would not vote for these labor laws. And by that, I mean, you know, the eight hour workday, the right to overtime pay, the right to a day off, the right to unionize, et cetera, worker, workers comp, so these basic protections, they would not vote for them if they included black people. And so they created an exclusion in the law for domestic labor and farm labor because that's who it was, right? But we haven't actually updated that. Go figure. So we need yeah. to we need to fix the labor laws. And then the final area in the super brief history of race and food is is in access <laughs> to food. Right. It's like Yeah, but like can you just summarize all of all of the issues, sir, in like five minutes? That'd be great. World, I mean, right? You're doing it. It's amazing. <laughs> Okay, sorry. But like black and brown folks, right? Black and brown folks are much more likely to be struggling with hunger, diabetes, heart disease, kidney failure, and other diet related illnesses. Um, And this is not because of like not choosing food well or not knowing how to make kale salad. It's because our zip code is our predeterminer of our life expectancy. And our zip code is majorly determined by a history of housing discrimination. Uh, racial segregation and so forth. And again, it goes back to the 1930s, but that's when redlining became official. So essentially the government commissioned these maps to be made, outlined black and brown neighborhoods in red, banks would not lend to them. So you could not develop wealth, home ownership over the years. People were confined to these areas because of restrictive zoning. And and largely those neighborhoods remain um, redlined. You know, they still, those same neighborhoods have low access to farmers markets and supermarkets, high rates of incarceration, uh, lower quality public schools and so forth. And so, you know, I really think that it's going to be impossible for us to create a sustainable and fair and just food system. If we don't look at race, we'd really have to put our heads in the sand because <laughs> uh, it's right mm-hmm. in front of us. You know, the disparities are, are really glaring. Yeah. And so kind of speaking of this, like, how do you define environmental racism? Because there seems to be such an overlap with uh, a lot of the examples that you just gave. Um, ha- like, have you, is this something that you witness a lot through your work? Absolutely. So environmental racism or environmental injustice, um, and I'm paraphrasing the definition, but it essentially has to do with disparities in terms of how environmental benefits are distributed and also environmental harms. So an environmental benefit would be a thing like a community garden, healthy food, clean water, right? And so we look at, are those distributed fairly along race, class, age? And then an environmental harm would be things like... um, particulate matter in the air, um, lead in the soil and so forth. And we absolutely see Mm -hmm. that. And there's huge overlap, right? Because, because food and farms are part of the environment. And so when we talk about a neighborhood under food apartheid, which is the term we prefer to food desert, the government term, which, you know, a desert implies a natural phenomenon. Apartheid is a human created Mm -hmm. system. So when you Mm -hmm. talk about a food apartheid neighborhood, you know, not only is there often lack of access to community gardens and fresh food, but there's also in those same areas, um, you know, the air pollution that leads to asthma and issues with, with lung disease. There's often, um, challenges with lead in the soil and even lead in water, as we've seen, you know, recently in Flint and so forth. And so they are, they are overlapping issues. And I think we do best if we address them in concert. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take a super quick uh, commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors, but we will be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization, founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with food justice activist Leah Penniman. So thinking of um, of recent events, um, is there anything, I'm kind of shifting gears here a little bit, but there is there anything that you would like to add to or change in your book um, in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the international outrage and protests that have followed? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, both I as an individual and we as Soul Fire Farm unequivocally stand with the Vision for Black Lives platform of the uh, movement for Black Lives. We have been uh, able to give input on the policy table around the the Breathe Act, which we're really honored to do. And so Mm -hmm. this feels like not... I mean, I don't want to sound cynical, but this isn't different. I think that the public attention on the anti-Black racism that permeates our society um, is welcome. And I certainly hope it's not a passing fad. I hope that we're able to make that conscious shift and create mm-hmm. some enduring changes in policy. But this, these are the issues that we've been working on for decades, right? These are the issues that are talked about in Farming While Black. If you look at chapter 16, which is about guidelines for white folks who want to uproot racism, it talks about the vision mm-hmm. for Black Lives Matter, you know, the Black Lives Matter platform and how you can support and so forth. And so I yeah. think the biggest shift is that folks are paying attention in a different way. And, you know, there's lots of reasons for that from the vulnerability of pandemic to uh, the really blatant and unapologetic racism of the current president, like a lot of things that are causing <laughs> folks to wake up and see that this is mm-hmm. this is an issue we definitely have to address. But fundamentally, you know, the issues haven't changed. We need fairness and equity when it comes to jobs, housing, schools, food, access to environmental benefits, all the things like that hasn't changed. Yeah. How, and so you've, you've prioritized a lot of, um, it seems like you've done a lot of work to change the um, criminal injustice system. And obviously, like we've just, like you talked about, like we know there's so many issues that need to be like addressed. What made you draw your focus to this particular issue in the work that you've done? And do you see this as like a primary kind of intervention opportunity when thinking about how to solve 
uh, food injustice. Absolutely. So, I mean, the reason we even got into addressing criminal injustice system in the first place was because we try to be an organization that's responsive to the needs of our community. And when we first opened up in 2010, we were doing doorstep delivery of food and parents who were in our program were saying, can you do something to help out our kids? Because there's no summer programs for them. They're getting harassed by the police. They're getting in trouble for loitering. They're getting records at a young Mm -hmm. age. We need something to do. And so we started our youth program specifically to address the needs of these wonderful, beautiful, you know, black and brown youth who were not receiving the services that they needed in our community. And in relationship with that, you know, we started hearing stories from these young people about their um, so-called infractions with the law, you know, things that happened, truancy and and loitering, loitering. like non-crimes, right? Like we were hanging around on the street where we live. So we ended up collaborating with a friend of ours who worked for the Albany County District Attorney to create a diversion program. So we actually had to get some new legislation passed to make this possible. And the prosecutor and the judge could agree that instead of sentencing these young folks to uh, probation or to juvenile detention, they could go through a leadership development program. And so we piloted Mm -hmm. this in our early years and we had three cohorts of five youth at a time who were kept out of jail, right? And allowed to come mm-hmm. do leadership training. So we we did, we taught them public speaking, um, you know, farming, culinary, uh, entrepreneurship and business, all these basic skills. Um, and then when they, they graduated, they had their records wiped clean and they were, they were like back in the good graces of the law. And so kind of our specialty at Soul Fire Farm is we really think a lot about how do we, we create those alternative systems as if we lived in the world we want to see. Like what does hmm. what does supporting young people who need extra help look like that isn't about criminal involvement, right? Or like demonizing these young people. What does a food system yeah. look like that actually gets food to the people who need it most? So we we experiment, innovate around those alternative systems with the hope that it creates a template and a model that can be, you know, replicated and adopted on a wider scale. I was, and this is an example of my privilege, I was um, like really shocked to read about loitering and and kind of like the history of loitering and how it came to to be and categorized as a crime and how many um, youth are arrested because of it and how that is like an entryway into the criminal injustice system. Um, it's that, that was very surprising. Yeah, it's pretty Um, wild. I mean, my understanding from, you know, reading the historical literature is that after emancipation, you know, folks in the South were freaking out because what what are they going to do about their free labor? And so they created a whole Mm -hmm. series of laws called the Black Codes, which criminalized things like loitering, which is hanging around, vagrancy, which is not having a job, specifically a year-long contract on a farm. And the most insidious one that I saw on the on the Black Codes list was not being upright and honest is a crime. The punishment <laughs> for which is to have your children taken away and apprenticed to their former masters at the beginning of CPS, right? The beginning of the state mm. taking away people's children. So child protective services. really, yeah. really wild. And then what they, thank you, yeah. child protective services. So what yeah. they did was they would incarcerate, you know, the prisons filled with black people for these so-called crimes. And then they would lease them back to the plantations, the mines and the railroads. And this was like upwards of 75% of Alabama state budget in the late 1800s, um, the income from convict leasing. So this was not a little blip on history. It was a major economic driver. And by the way, it's not over. Uh, 2019, we saw a huge spike 
in convict leasing because of the current administration's crackdown on uh, so-called immigration, right? And a labor shortage Mm. of pickers on farms. Black men are back in the fields working for free. Um, And there was a a whole lot of press about it last year. I'm I'm sure it's continuing this year, but it's not in the news because of COVID. Uh, So- yeah, because everything. <laughs> yeah, because because every because everything every day it's a it's like a what fresh horror waits for me and exactly in front of the exactly. news. Um, yeah. Oh well, that I mean that was that's just I think an example of how you um, just like you you provide like a a historical context that um, is easy to understand and like and kind of remember. Um, it's like a great version of um like it's a lot of history there but but written in a way that um <laughs> that I will remember it which is <laughs> which is saying something cuz it's been a long time since I've been in a history class I so. know I um, had to keep it simple I mean I'm a scientist but I was a bi- biology major so I to get into history I had to keep it really simple too <laughs> Well I was going to ask you if you had any um like background in like psychology um, or kind of anything in in that field because a lot of like the the training kind of programs and and that I have read and especially I think it's in the like um, uprooting racism section it's very I mean to me I'm like it's it's a lot of therapy I think and um, like very effective communication skills that I mean this is like personal but I'm like I think I've you know paid a lot of money in therapy to, to <laughs> learn those. <laughs> I should have just read your book. <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, I, I wish I had some formal background. I will tell you, I, I was a little bit mad too about all the therapy stuff because, you know, like I mentioned, I have a science background. So I would put all this work into my training yeah. programs. People would come and I would have a beautiful lesson about cation exchange capacity, which is like a soil property. <laughs> this beautiful workshop about, you know, your cover crop mixes and how to fix nitrogen. And then in my evaluations, nobody's talking about that. They're talking about, oh, now I'm sober. Now I left a abusive marriage. Now I left this toxic work environment, right? And it took yeah. me a little while to accept that possibly the biggest thing we are doing as we train up farmers on the land is healing generational trauma. I mean, people are carrying so much pain from the oppression of racism, you know, mm-hmm. slavery to sharecropping, to convict leasing, to the great migration, to gentrification and redlining, like all this pain are bringing. And then, and then they come to the land and mother earth is like the master composter, right? Not only can she mm. compost like trees and squirrels and turn them into like humus, right? But she can compost our trauma, our pain, our dejection, our self-doubt, and give it back to us as hope and fortitude. And that's what's happening all the time as whole fire. Like people are walking around with their bare feet on the earth um, and and having the opportunity to heal. And I don't I don't I'm not doing that. The earth is doing that. So <laughs> I don't have any degrees in psychology. I don't, I mean, it was, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, it was very, um, I mean, there's skills that I continue to learn, you know, and, and I, um, it was just very, I I really loved reading it. I was like, oh, my therapist is on point. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. She's on the right track. Um, (laughs) so, all right. All right. Well, um, well kind of transitioning to how, and this is where, um, you know, I, I am um, grateful to be able to have this conversation, especially for you and not to make it, I I want to like the uprooting racism section, right? And that is something that like, 
I am very focused on right, right now um, as a white person and, you know, figuring out how I can be better. There are a few things in here that I wanted to kind of dig into and don't have a lot of understanding about. Like, um, you talk about cultural appropriation. And mm-hmm. this is certainly something that we see in the food space. But I'm wondering, um, can you just kind of, what does this, can you define what this means? Absolutely. And, and, so, is it, and is it always a bad thing? Is there a difference between like appropriation, misappropriation? If you can kind of help break that down for me, that I would really, I would love that. Absolutely. So, you know, cultural appropriation refers to a, a group who holds power. So a racial group, an ethnic group, a societal group who holds power, taking the cultural material or intellectual material of a group who does not hold as much power in that society for their own benefit and without consent. So that could include the religion, the recipes, the textile patterns, uh, language and sayings, uh, music, right? When a dominant group Mm -hmm. is, is taking this without compensation, permission for their own benefit. Appropriation is always whack, right? Cultural sharing mm-hmm. with consent is beautiful. Like the way that our society has managed to, our, our global society has managed to grow and evolve and change is through sharing and exchange. An example of, of an uh, consensual sharing would be that my ancestors who came from the Dahomey region of West Africa brought with them a lot of seeds braided into their hair. One of those seeds mm-hmm. is, a, is a cow pea, right? Or pigeon pea. And they traded that in the Caribbean with the Taino Native Americans for a very special pumpkin called jumu, which is now super important to our cuisine as Haitians. That is cultural sharing. Cultural appropriation is when Monsanto tries to take some rice seed from India and patent it, right? And sell it and and put some Mm -hmm. Terminator seeds in it and then then take people to court for using their own indigenous seed, right? That's cultural appropriation on the extreme. And then there's a whole lot of nuance in between that. But I will tell you a a quick story about that is that we used to hold these week-long training programs for white identified people around uprooting racism. So folks who really wanted to confront their privilege, figure out how to be allies or accomplices, right? And so we gave folks a challenge and we said, for this week, we want you to try not to appropriate anything just to notice what comes Mm -hmm. up. So if you're cooking a dish for the community, it's from your heritage, right? If you are setting the table with a tablecloth, that textile is from your heritage. You're not taking it from anybody else. If you put on music, it's from your heritage. Not because we should never listen to anyone else's music, but I just, we wanted to see what came up. And it was so powerful because to be really frank, white folks are very used to taking things from other people and to confront what it would be like to really use the labor of your own ancestors and your own family and not the labor and ideas of other people for just five days. Mm-hmm felt impossible to Mm -hmm. people, right? But by contrast, when we gave the similar challenge to black and brown folks coming to our our immersion program, and we said, we're going to do cultural sharing recipes, bring the recipes from your grandma, bring the dances from your people, like no yoga, right? It was easy. (laughs) It was like, well, of course, of course, that's what we do, right? Because we're the ones who've been generating that material. And so I just encourage folks to Rather than try to skip over the work and be like, well, when is it okay for me to take? Like really sit with what it would be like to just take a few days off of taking and and see what that would be like. 
Yeah. I mean, you write um, the undoing cultural appropriation dialogue questions, which I have gone through and of course highlighted. Um, and I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I could send you a picture. Um, uh, so I like, I mean, I went through the questions and then I kind of, first of all, I felt like it was, I mean, it's kind of a bummer for me. I was like, uh, <laughs> oh, no. I don't I, like, yeah, I mean, well, I, you know, I mean, like, I, okay, my grandfather's from Italy and Canadian. So, I mean, I'm just like really thinking through, like, I don't, I, for me, it was kind of like heart. Like if I had to live in a world that was just, um, you know, for five days, just, I, I don't even know how I would like piece it out in a way and like mm-hmm. what I could claim mm-hmm. as like my own versus um, that of other cultures. So it was, there are questions I, w- I want to continue thinking about, but I mean, I kind of left my, um, yeah, so that's like my own thing to maybe talk to you about <laughs> later in, with all the time you don't have. Um, but like, yeah, I guess I, I read the questions. And so I thought like, okay, well, what now? How do I, how do I turn these questions once I've kind of gone through them? And you ask questions about like, um, what are ethical ways of borrowing? And, and what is something that you've benefited from that is not, you know, that's from a culture not re- represented in your own di- identity, M- you know, what, what comes next? What can I do now to make sure that I'm not appropriating somebody else's culture, that I am instead, you know, engaging in, and that I'm sharing it and that I'm grateful to have the opportunity to experience it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there's certainly no, no easy answers to that at all. And I mean, it's something that we wrestle with all the time. So, you know, for example, there are some seeds that are native to this region that are Mohican seed, they're Aquasasane seed, and we want to grow them. And then we have these questions about, well, is it okay to grow? Is it okay for us to give out that food for free? Is it okay for Mm -hmm. us to sell the seed through a catalog, but then remit the proceeds to the nation? And so we actually have relationships, right, with the Mohican nation, who are the the indigenous stewards of the land that we're on, where we have an opportunity to ask these questions um, and to actually get permission. And that took many years. It took many years to build that friendship to the point where we can mm-hmm. we can say in confidence, like here is the the Mohican um, black maze, the Mohican white maze, the number six bee bomb, um, you know, the Muncie bean that I'm looking at right out my window and I'm going to grow these seeds. And, and I know that that food, I will distribute it in an honorable way. And I will remit that seed back to the nation. Um, and I don't think there's an easy answer to all of it, but I think it's important to hold the question really present because it helps us check ourselves, you know, if we're getting mm-hmm. in a mode of, of taking. And, and I'll mention one other thing too, because a good friend of mine, um, Owen Taylor is Italian and he recorded this beautiful podcast on Table Underground talking about this very issue of, um, you know, of ethnicity and race and appropriation. And one of the most powerful concepts he brought forward is just what his ancestors really had to give up to buy into the white American dream. And a lot of it was these cultural pieces, their food, their language, their religion, mm-hmm. um, their their way of being with each other and and traded that in for this this power, this like white card. And his work of his lifetime, he feels like, is to actually go back and start to uncover some of what was lost. And so Owen, um, whose company is True Love Seeds, all one word, True Love, is going and like mm-hmm. finding these heritage Italian crops and recipes and like bringing those forward, right? And this is this is his life work. And it's very inspiring yeah. to me. Um, and I think it's inspiring to a lot of folks who think that they are so disconnected from their culture that there's no going back. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, I should mention that you you referenced the book Who Owns Culture by Susan um, Scafidi, if I pronounce that correctly. And so that's something that like, you know, for my own for my own self, I, I need to do more kind of research on this topic because I'm very interested in it. Um, so I have I have more work to do on that front. Um, and also kind of like around I'm like, but one more question, what is like, what does permission kind of look like and thinking through that on like an everyday kind of uh, like day-to-day basis. I don't know if you guys have talked about that at all, especially around food. I mean, uh, you know, obviously, cause food to me is food is sharing food is love. Like food is learning about other cultures and, and celebrating them through tasting like delicious things that you never, that you maybe didn't grow up with. Of course, of course. And, um, and I think there's a huge difference and a distinction, and this comes from talking to people whose cultures have been appropriated, between mm-hmm. enjoying something and profiting from something. So me mm-hmm. making a taco for my family tonight is one thing. Me opening a taco truck and advertising it as a person who is not from that culture is a totally different thing. And so I think, you know, not what, and again, I don't want to say there's like this cat, this even clean line of like appropriating sharing, right? And I'm not going to pretend to speak for everybody, but that is one important distinction that a lot of people make. Like there's a big difference between sharing in and enjoying something versus trying to uh, commercialize it and benefit from it monetarily. Okay, so I pro- thank you for that. Um, I promised uh, earlier that we're going to talk about policy, and this is like, I mean, <laughs> like my favorite. And I'm a total policy nerd. So you have a list of um, policy demands in your book on the Soulfire um, Farm website. You work with he- the Heal Food Alliance um, and have this like great list of of everything that kind of you know you you would like to see. So in a world where we <laughs> There's so much wrong, and we can't do every single thing at the time at the same time. What are a few key policy initiatives that you would like to see prioritized, um, and why? Absolutely. So, you know, my daughter Nishima says the food system is everything it takes to get sunshine onto your plate. Uh, so that <laughs> means there's a lot of points of intersection, right? We're talking about land and labor and distribution and eating. So I don't want to, you know, go to soulfirefarm.org, take action, check out all the policy changes, but. A few that I will mention is the Fairness for Farm the Fairness for Farm Workers Act is one which would simply equalize labor laws so that farm workers have the same protections as everybody else. That should be a no brainer. It's 2020, right? Another one is <laughs> HR 40. So HR 40 is a bill that would commission the study of and planning of possible reparations in the United States for descendants of enslaved. Africans. That is a really, really important one because, you know, the way it is right now, when a white child takes their first breath, they are 16 times wealthier on average than a black child taking their first breath. And that is not because of calisthenics Mm -hmm. in the womb. That is because of history (laughs) of inheritance, right? Often on, Mm -hmm. on on the backs of people who were unpaid or underpaid. And so, so we need to look at that and then keep your eyes peeled because, um, Booker and Warren are going to be co-sponsoring a bill that's specifically around land for black farmers that should be announced in a few months. And so that's something we were able to give some input on. Um, And and we're very excited because that's going to put a bunch of uh, policy needs together in one package. Oh, that's that's amazing. Um, Okay, we've got uh, three minutes less than um, left. Uh, 
key resources. Um, well, uh, actually first like solution oriented <laughs> actions that we, I'm like, wait, there's two solution oriented actions that we can all take in our everyday lives, especially for those, you know, like myself who live in an urban environment, um, to address racism in the food system. Oh my goodness. Well, the good news is such a complex problem has like thousands of solutions, right? So again, go to our take action page. There's tons of things you can do. But a quick thing is check out the reparations map on our page. It's a really neat tool that has black and brown led food and farming projects across the country listed with what they need, Mm -hmm. which might be some volunteer help, a tractor, a hug, you know, a COVID safe Mm -hmm. hug, uh, land. And so you can check and see if there's anyone near you, um, and support them. Um, another thing that's really exciting, um, is the agricultural justice projects food justice certification. So if you, if your local farmer does not already sign on to food justice certification, encourage them to do so. It, uh, stipulates how workers are treated. And that's a part that is often missed with organic and local and fair trade and all of that. It's about how workers are treated. So support that and many, many more things. And if you want to get more involved with Soulfire Farm, uh, we have a mm-hmm. ton of online offerings, as does everyone in 2020. But every Friday at 4 p.m. <laughs> Eastern, we have a Facebook Live gardening show where black women farmers answer your call-in questions. So that's a lot of fun. We also have a whole series of webinars teaching you how to farm, uh, including like soils, beekeeping, mushrooms, greenhouse propagation, all that kind of stuff. So you can find that on our website. Um, And then Mm -hmm. let's see what else. Finally, I will mention that um, if you're interested in volunteering or like pitching in, we're in the middle of a big campaign to get some new buildings built so that we can be up to code and continue our work. And there's lots of, of both monetary ways to contribute as well as some volunteer ways. So you can check out soulfirefarm.org and, and join in that campaign as well. Amazing. Um, does the Facebook live um, events, do they talk about urban balcony gardening? Oh, absolutely. It's mostly <laughs> or it's, house or house plants. <laughs> yes. Well, not food. It okay. talks about food, but, um, it is for like okay, container right. gardening, small scale <laughs> urban, all that stuff. So it's, it is, it, it's because we okay. were getting so many emails and calls from people asking for gardening advice. We're like, we need yes, to create yeah. a call-in show and they can ask their questions then. So it's, it's a lot of fun and we have a different guest Perfect. every week. <laughs> I love it. Yes. A lot of people are trying to bring the green in and so, um, and on their balcony for, for like, you know, city, city people like me. Okay. All right. You, I have to leave it there. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. This was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. This was a blast. Um, yeah, I look forward to <laughs> seeing pictures of your raised bed once you get a little more land. Um, I want to thank our sponsors for your generous support. Show music is by Tim Archer and all episodes of Eating Matters are available on HRN's website or wherever podcasts are found. I'm Jenna Liute and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.